a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. You can't get to zero emissions without electrifying the appliances and equipment in our homes. 42% of overall energy-related emissions coming from these so-called kitchen table decisions about what equipment you use in your home, what kind of car you drive, whether you use solar. Okay, so disclosure, I do have heat pumps for my HVAC system. I do not yet use electricity to heat my water in my house, and I do not have an induction stove. The question is, am I ahead of or behind the rest of the population? The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So as part of the conversation that we had on this podcast last week with Trevor Hauser, there was a bit toward the end that I thought was especially interesting where we talked about the technologies where there are incentives in the United States that came largely from the Inflation Reduction Act, but where the market is not exactly booming yet. One of the ones that we talked about there was heat pumps, where the market is actually down year over year in overall sales. There's nuance to that because the market for HVAC systems in general is even further down. But it opened up a question for me that is a little bit broader, which is how are we doing in terms of overall home electrification in the United States? You hear a lot of buzz about it these days, I think for for good reason. And it's not just heat pumps for heating and cooling. It's also for water heating and for... Uh, clothes drying and for cooking, um, all of which can be electrified, not all with heat pumps, obviously. And, uh, it, you know, you can get the sense from the outside that like we're at the beginning of an S-curve or we're somewhere in the middle of an S-curve there. Uh, I don't know whether we've hit the inflection point. Are we struggling to build momentum? Anyway, it's an interesting set of questions because home electrification, one, is part of most plans for overall decarbonization of the economy, and two, has bigger ramifications for a lot of other things that we've talked about. For example, the impacts on the electric grid and load growth there that extends beyond home electrification, but is going to have a big impact on our ability to deliver clean power. So I wanted to have a chat about where we are on the pace of progress of home electrification. Also, before we begin, I'm hosting, I think, the third Ask Me Anything episode of this podcast, where I answer your questions about climate tech or the energy transition or really whatever you want. So please send in questions. Um, you could tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn with the hashtag AskCatalyst. That's hashtag AskCatalyst. You can also leave a voicemail if that is something that you still do. The number is 919-808-5832. Or you can email us at catalyst at latitudemedia.com. Uh, for this 
podcast, I brought on Steve Pantano, who is the director of market transformation at Rewiring America, which is focused on home electrification. So there's no one better to address this question. And with no further ado, here's Steve. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Shell. Nice to be here. Let's talk about home electrification. Uh, starting with, you know, it's a it's a category that encompasses a number of different things that we can do in homes to electrify things that are otherwise not electrified. So, so let's run through the categories and maybe if you can, I guess, rank order the components of home electrification in terms of how, their importance from the, I guess, from the decarbonization perspective. Like what's the most important home electrification item all the way down the list to the ones that we, you know, we could talk about, but they don't matter as much. Yeah, when we look at when we look at the profile of an average home, uh, and we have good data from the Department of Energy, they do something called Rex or the Residential Energy Consumption Survey every five years or so. Um, the DOE tells us that about fifty five percent of the emissions from an average home comes from heating and cooling or your HVAC system, nineteen percent from water heating, three uh, percent from clothes drying, and two percent from cooking. That doesn't total up to 100. The remainder is plug loads like your television, um, other appliances that you may have in your house, your coffee maker, et cetera. Uh, but really heating and cooling uh, and water heating are are well up there at the top of the list. I guess the other way to think about which ones are, are most important are like, which ones do we have most urgency on because the stock turnover is slowest? Like there's some things that you can do at any time and there's other things that you're only going to do once every 10 years or whatever it is. And those, that second category are ones that even if it's like the total magnitude of the impact isn't necessarily as large, it, it's an important one because the purchase behavior is infrequent. How do you think about that with all the categories? So we look at... There are, I think, typical statistical lifetimes for equipment. So an HVAC system has a life of about 15 years, statistically. A water heater, about 10 years. Um, clothes dryers, maybe seven or eight years. Um, and, and cooking might be a little bit longer. But HVAC's really the big one uh, there again, because you know you don't. Uh, it's a big expense, right? You don't want to replace your heating system every five years. Uh, hopefully, you're not in a position where you have to do that. So. Uh, we want, you know, part of our mission at Rewiring America is making people aware of uh, the appliances in their home and the equipment in their home so that they're ready to make these changes uh, when that piece of equipment fails. And then you don't lock in emissions from um, uh, fossil fuel appliance for another 15 years or so if you're doing, uh, you know, if you're putting in a new um, fossil fuel HVAC system. Also, the electrical equipment uh, is an important piece to the equation as well. So uh, if you think about your load center in your house or your electrical panel, that's probably original to your home in most cases. Uh, it doesn't get upgraded very often, but a lot of what we talk about when we talk about electrification is turning fossil fuel devices into uh, electric alternatives, which in many cases requires uh, new circuits to be run. So if you have a gas water heater today and you want to convert to a heat pump water heater, you're going to need electrical service in that vicinity where you maybe don't have it now. Um, and that's going to require some changes to your panels. So panels are another one that that come up on the, the long life list where we want to see people being proactive and, and thinking about ways to to prepare themselves for a future appliance upgrade. So we talked about the share of energy consumption of the home that each of these units accounts for on average. But stepping back for a second, like how important is home electrification in the context of overall emissions in the United States? Both, in, I guess the, there's two parts to that question. Like how much of overall emissions is associated with residential 
energy consumption? And then how big a benefit do you get electrifying, particularly given that the grid is not yet fully decarbonized? So this is going to be a regional answer, I'm sure, but just high level. Yeah, so overall, I mean, you can't get to zero emissions without electrifying the appliances and equipment in our homes. Um, There's 121 million households around the country. That's a lot of equipment. So the number we use uh, for that is about 42% of overall energy-related emissions coming from these so-called kitchen table decisions about what equipment you use in your home, what kind of car you drive, whether you use solar on your roof or community solar to get your energy. So it's a big chunk of the national emissions, um, the national emissions picture. And uh, it's it's also, you know, in some places, it's in, in a lot of places, actually, it's carbon positive today to make these changes. And somewhere the grid is uh, perhaps a little, you know, there's perhaps a lot of coal uh, or, you know, dirty emission sources on the, the grid side. It's maybe not emissions positive for everyone today. But, you know, if you put solar on your roof and electrify, that, ch- that changes the equation uh, dramatically. And we're seeing so much uh, introduction of new renewables on the grid uh, nationally that that situation will change uh, pretty soon everywhere, right? So this is you know electrification is an investment in the future. Uh, it's it's uh, it returns uh, returns some dividends on your um, your investment in terms of carbon emissions. So every you know every new bit of renewable that joins the grid, every bit cleaner that the grid gets, your electrification investments in your home get that much more beneficial in terms of their overall carbon impact. All right, so let's talk about where we are in terms of progress on electrification and trends in electrification in each of these categories that we've described. I think it'll be interesting to talk about it categorically, but also geographically, like, you know, in different types of customers. There's a bunch of interesting ways to think about this. But let's start with just overall, and and we can go in that same rank order of importance, uh, what the trend line is. Uh, So starting, obviously, with uh, heating and cooling, you know, we we did an episode very recently... um, where part of the conversation was like, what's going on with heat pump sales? Just because overall heat pump sales are not exactly booming as you might imagine they would be right now, given all the excitement about heat pumps. So what's the overall picture on heating and cooling electrification? How has that been trending? And like, where are we in the progression of uh, overall electrification there? So yeah, we think about, we wrote a report earlier this year called The Pace of Progress, where we charted uh, what we think needs to happen across each of the the big end uses to get to uh, zero emissions sort of building stock, uh, residential building stock in the country. And we looked to a 2050 target and we said, where are the sales trends going today and how much do we need to accelerate those in order to get uh, get to 100% electric by 2050, given some of these equipment lifetimes, the long lifetimes that we talk about and the turnover of stock and, and where things have been going. Um, for heat pumps, we uh, you, you may be uh, aware that heat pumps outsold furnaces for the f- gas and oil furnaces as uh, heating equipment for the first time last year. Um, those trends have continued. So I think the um, the the changes in sales that are being perceived right now are really broader market changes in people's ability to invest in home upgrades of of this nature. Um, if you look broadly across all heating technologies, all Markets are down, and heat pumps continue to beat furnaces um, in terms of their overall sales. So, going back to the pace of progress, we the the way this curve works is it starts off gradually and then ramps up quickly um, over uh, future years, which means that we have you know a few years left to get to twenty fifty, where the 
sales targets can be uh, nationally for heat pumps can be a little more modest, and then they they quickly grow to where we want to see that become the predominant technology uh, being installed everywhere. And what we found was that uh, between 2023 and 2025, we need about 7.7 uh, million heat pump sales overall nationally. Um, the business as usual growth, if there were no acceleration in the market, would be about 5.3 million heat pumps. So that leaves a gap of about 2.5 million sales that we want to see induced between now and 2025. That puts us on track for this you know, sort of full turnover to electric technologies by 2050. Um, the, as I said, the market is, you know, I think uh, interest rates are high. People are hesitant to make big infrastructure investments in their homes. These are big projects, whether it's to replace a fossil furnace or uh, to install a heat pump. So, you know, people are looking at tens of thousands of dollars of investment. It's harder to finance that today uh, with a home interest loan or home equity loan or otherwise than it was a couple of years ago. So that's probably depressing sales sort of broadly across the market. But even still, uh, we see, uh, let's see, we've got 9.5% uh, slowdown in heat pump shipments, but still sales of 2.7 million year to date as of August of this year. And that's from the latest data from AHRI, the Industry Association. Um, but even uh, gas furnaces are down about 25%. Gas and oil furnaces are down 25% over the same period. So heat pumps are not being as maybe affected as much as some of the fossil fuel equipment and still sort of beating out, um, beating out fossil, uh, despite the fact that the overall numbers have slowed down just a bit. Right. So rising share of a shrinking market, at least in the, in the immediate term. And then presumably at some point, the market doesn't shrink forever because U.S. housing stock is, is going to grow, but it's sort of un, undetermined timeline under which that turns because obviously interest rates are higher for longer than people expected and who knows what happens with the economy. But so the good, good news is growing share, bad news is the overall market is down. Yeah, I mean, people, and you can't you can't defer investments in heating and cooling systems forever, right? There comes a point where people have to make this choice, regardless of interest rates. So um, there is some turnover that'll certainly continue to happen. And then, of course, we hope that the Inflation Reduction Act and all of these investments uh, from the federal government that are coming into play will really spur more and more of that transformation. I'm interested to go one level deeper on this. I mean, I think there's a few different ways you could cut the heat pump sales figures, right? There's uh, there's regional. Right, because you know heat pumps are they have much higher penetration already in places like the southeast where they're were predominantly used for cooling than they do in like the Midwest, upper Midwest or the Northeast where you need a lot of heating. And so I'm interested if if the trends are different regionally. And then I guess the other way to look at it would be you know heat pumps are a broad category. There's mini splits and central ducted units and all, all sorts of different kinds of things. Do we see any noticeable difference in adoption thus far along those lines? So unfortunately, we're limited by uh, the data in this respect. So there, there was a time where there were reason, re, uh, regional sales figures published for uh, the heat pump market um, within maybe across five or six different regions of the country. Unfortunately, those data aren't published anymore. So we're a bit, uh, we're a bit blind to that. We, what we do have, uh, and what we will soon have more of, is state level data that will give us a bit more insight into how the market is moving um, state by state. Now. For example, one success story of late is the state of Maine, which had a hundred thousand uh, heat pump sales target for its statewide um, climate goals, and exceeded that a couple of years ahead of schedule, and then revised that goal up to, I believe, one hundred and seventy-five thousand systems. Um, so we know, for example, that there's a lot of success happening in the state of Maine. Um, 
so we can have some of that insight into exactly what's happening state by state or region by region. But unfortunately, right now, um, we're we're sort of limited to the national view plus some of these stories that are coming out, um, in, you know, in, in limited quantities from from certain states. Maine is obviously an interesting one. I mean, unless there's something specific about Maine, like they've got a statewide rebate or something like that. I mean, it's obviously a cold climate. Uh, so, you know, you'd anticipate that like barring Maine having something unique, idiosyncratic to to that state, then probably what's happening in Maine might be happening in Vermont or Massachusetts or, you know, other regional areas that have similar climate profiles. Yeah, I think Maine Maine has been a, a leader in taking a pretty comprehensive um sort of statewide agenda towards the heating uh heating electrification market in general. Um and they do have uh they have put a lot of resources towards contractor training and consumer awareness and this um sort of broader program to try to try to move the market. That is also happening in other states, New York, uh for example, Massachusetts um in the northeast both have heating electrification programs. Um I haven't uh necessarily seen the stats on those to know if they're also exceeding their targets. Um, but more and more states are starting to pay attention to this now, obviously in light of the, the rebate programs that are coming, and, and we expect a lot more of this to be happening um, in, in a lot of places pretty soon. And, and you know, again, as I think as these programs take shape, uh, we'll have much better insights into what's working and what's not, and can help to um, facilitate some of that learning uh, between states, you know, our, ourselves, and, and a lot of other organizations that play that type of role to to help different states or different program implementers learn from their peers and, and um, incorporate best practices. So from where you sit today, like, what, what do you, I mean, you know, that period of needing that extra two and a half million units or whatever it is, is pretty short. That's now to 2025. That's probably, that period is probably during the interest rates remain high cycle. I mean, maybe they come down toward the end of that, who knows. But, um, you know, from where you sit today, like how hard is it going to be to, Approach those numbers, given that again we have growing share of shrinking market. I, mean, I think it's a it's a it's undoubtedly a huge challenge. I mean, we have we have tens of millions of heating systems. This is not to mention water heaters and everything else that has to be installed. Right, this is a big uh, mobilization that I think should be considered on par with other big uh, sort of national mobilizations of effort to to make the changes we need to make. Right, our uh, the climate emergency is a climate emergency. It needs to be addressed as such. And, and you know, thankfully, the administration put the Inflation Reduction Act in place to get the conversation started and put a lot of money into the market. But um, one thing that always comes to mind for me is that, you know, we have uh, roughly nine, nine and a half billion dollars in rebates in the Inflation Reduction Act that can be applied for efficiency or electrification. That's a lot of money. But at the same time, in one year, uh, I think it was 2022. One oil company, Exxon, made 54 billion in profit. Uh, that's you know six times what's available for rebates. So that's one oil company in one year after doing everything they need to do to secure their their market share for fossil fuels, still reaped 54 billion in profit. So that's you know the disparity in in economic power we're talking about here is is still big. Uh, we need more attention on this. We need more resources for this. Um, as much as we can get, uh, because you know the playing field's pretty uneven to begin with here. Um, but you know, thankfully, again, we have we have the IRA. We have this good start. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a lot more funding channeled in this direction as well through other um, IRA programs in the future. Um, and and looking for you know looking forward to to trying to make those all harmonize and, and work together well. 
Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. So let's talk about, we, we talked about HVAC. Let's talk about water heating. Obviously, that's the other reasonably large category. And I think the one that gets less attention, honestly, people talk a lot about uh, heat pumps for heating and cooling, I think less for water heating. Where are we on our pace of progress on on water heating electrification? So for water heating, we have a little more time. So water heaters have, again, we use this 10-year life versus 15 for, um, for HVAC. And what that does is it lengthens the shallow part of the curve before we really have to accelerate progress. So our, according to our calculations nationally, again, to that 2025 uh, deadline, we need 810,000 heat pump water heaters uh, in total installed across the country. We're on pace for 613,000, which leaves about 204,000 or so as a gap um, in terms of what we need to accelerate. 200,000 over 50 states is not a huge challenge, right? We have, again, this is like the nice... Uh, the convenient part of the ramp uh, that we're in now, but we do have to start taking action. Um, there's been a lot of interesting innovation. I think just a couple of days ago, I saw that A.O. Smith introduced its own 120-volt plug-in water heater, uh, heat pump water heater. Ream has had one on the market for a while. Now A.O. Smith uh, has one as well. So that's a huge opportunity, right? This is a, a technology that is going to get us a lot of these sales that we need to see in the market because uh, if let's say, again, you have a gas water heater, uh, but you happen to have a free 120-volt uh, outlet nearby, you can plug in a heat pump water heater instead of having to have a dedicated 240-volt circuit run. Uh, that's going to work great for a lot of smaller homes, multifamily buildings, um, and elsewhere where maybe there's you know some challenges in uh, investing in some of the electrical infrastructure. Now you don't have to do that. You can buy that water heater today and plug it right into the wall, and you've gone to heat pump. Obviously, you still need to plumb it into the house, so it's not it's not quite that simple. But it's a lot easier than having to run a dedicated circuit. What about the combined? We've seen some heat pumps that do both uh, water heating and space heating and cooling. Is that do you see that as a significant? trend or is it a tiny niche part of the market? I think it's a niche for now. Um, I'd be inter- I mean there's a lot of innovation out there that's yet to sort of hit its stride. Um, that could be one where we start to see uh, some interesting uh, market growth. but yeah, I think for now, I mean most of these products, HVAC and, and water heaters are sold through different channels. People think about them differently. they buy them on different timelines. So unless you're really doing a comprehensive retrofit of your home, um, you know, there's uh, probably not going to be top of mind for most people to, to, repl- to try to do two things at once. That actually gets to a broader question that I wanted to ask you about, so we'll jump to it now, which is the doing home electrification piecemeal versus 
electrifying your home full stop. There's, you know, a bunch of companies now that are out there pursuing this sort of like whole home electrification approach and they can wrap financing with it. And maybe this, this involves more than what we've just talked about, right? Sometimes it'll include an EV charger or rooftop solar or whatever. Um, you know, and historically, I think, you know, just going back a ways, like in the early days of, of rooftop solar, some of those companies, Solar City being an example, you know, dabbled in like, oh, maybe we should do an energy efficiency retrofit at the same time that we do rooftop solar. They all backed away from that because it ended up like overly complicating the sales process. And, you know, it, it just made the customer acquisition costs higher, all these additional challenges. I wonder how you see that playing out in home electrification here. Is this all happening? As you said, the replacement cycles are all different. Um, but, you know, there, there may be some set of consumers who want to electrify their home and don't want to wait around for each thing to come up. Yeah, I think we'll see a variety of solutions. I'm, I'm not going to hazard a guess as to which ones become predominant necessarily. Um, I think for people who have the money to make a huge investment and, you know, a big sort of comprehensive investment in, in upgrading their home, then sure, there will be uh, service providers who, who offer that. Uh, for others, I think um, it's as important as anything else just to have a plan, right? Just to understand how your house works, what fuels you're even using today, um, and then how long you might have until you have to replace your heating system. So, for example... Um, let's say you have a gas water heater and it's five years old, right? Um, you happen to have uh, your electrician over the house to do some work in a bathroom or something. That electrician should be, you know, there's a good argument to say that that electrician should be prepared to help that homeowner make a plan for electrifying their home sometime down the road. Um, we're developing tools, other organizations are developing tools to help people do this planning. But the idea is that if you have a professional in your home, they can help you navigate, you know, okay, your water heater is five years old. When you're ready to go to a heat pump, even if you're not ready today, we should be doing that electrical work now uh, or preparing ourselves for it so that you know that when that water heater eventually fails, you have uh, you have an idea of what types of products you're going to look for. You have an idea of how much time it's going to take that make to make that transition. And perhaps you've even already run the, the circuit over to that location so that you're ready to go with your... Um, new electric device instead of fossil fuel, and you're not hindered by some of these sort of obscure structural barriers, such as you know, I, oh, well, all of a sudden now I need to call an electrician that I didn't plan for if I want to make this this change for uh, towards a more climate friendly product, right? So, so planning really matters a lot, um, and I think you know most people, uh, maybe not listeners to this podcast, but a lot of people probably don't know how their home works and what fuels they even use, or and how much it actually costs them to operate their home. Um, let's say you have an, another example of this is if you have oil heat, um, you get an oil bill intermittently. You might not, you might get your oil tank filled up depending on where you live once or three or four times a year, but it doesn't look or feel like your electric bill or your gas bill because you don't see it monthly. And maybe it's not billed to your credit card automatically or whatever you have for a payment plan. So there are probably a lot of people out there who don't sort of consider their oil bill as part of their total energy cost. Um, but if they were to, uh, sort of look at the the big picture here and think about it holistically would understand that they're actually spending a lot more on energy than they think. Um, so having that plan, understanding how your home works, understanding uh, what your big opportunities are to save money through electrification is really important just to to get people oriented towards solving this problem and feeling empowered 
and having the pieces in place so that it's not too logistically challenging when it comes time to make a change. Okay, so we sort of skipped past the the two smaller categories that we mentioned at the beginning, which is cooking and clothes drying. I guess just briefly on those two, where are we relative to the others in terms of pace of progress and uh, you know any observations as to trend lines and in electrification of those two? So, yeah, um, we, we did not run clothes drying numbers in our pace of progress report, but I think we're going to have those soon. But on cooking, I can tell you uh, we've... We've looked at um, uh, 3.2 million induction stoves needed, again, up until that 2025 um, time period. That's over the first three years. Um, business as usual suggests we'll have about 1.5 million sales over that period. So we need to about double that pace um, over the 2023 to 2025 time period. Okay, so bigger delta in terms of how much is needed relative to the current pace, but obviously also smaller overall impact than needing more heat pumps or or electric water heaters. Yeah, it's again that's the cooking is just 2% of uh, typical emissions from the home. Um I'm interested in anything that you think. I mean, I think the overall trend lines here seem fairly intuitive. Maybe people hadn't appreciated that like HVAC sales are down overall, but um anything within the numbers that you've seen that surprises you either from a category perspective, geographically, like what what might not we appreciate about how we are doing in terms of electrification of the home. The thing I like to point to here is this this whole analysis, this whole pace of progress analysis does a couple of things. Um, it sort of breaks the problem down into me, sort of achievable near-term, let's say three to five-year objectives where the numbers aren't astronomically high. So you can actually think about designing a program that, uh, you know, an incentive program or or what have you that actually achieves those numbers. But then if you break it down even further to the state or county level, those numbers obviously get a lot smaller, right? So we look at um, one example we have is for the Chicago area. Um, there's about 2 million households in Cook County. Um, and if you look at the gap in water heater sales for heat pump water heaters, it's only 13,000 over that few years time period. So that's an eminently achievable number to put Cook County on on pace, essentially. And that number is, you know, it's only several hundred thousand nationally. So in any given place, it's only tens of thousands or even uh, even less in terms of water heaters. Those are achievable things, right? If it becomes a very solvable problem in the short term, as long as you're also then keeping an eye towards are these changes going to become uh, self-sustaining over time, right? There aren't going to be rebate programs forever. Uh, there are now um, or will be soon. Um, these are unlikely to last for until 2050. Maybe they will. It'd be, it'd be great if they did, but they're, let's say it's unlikely. So the market needs to sort of catch on to these signals and respond in turn. And what that means is, you know, investing in training for workforce, uh, building competition among installers, um, so that there's enough people out there who know how to install these systems well and that people have good experiences with them. Building awareness, all this stuff around the market has to happen so that um, you know, in this uh, up in this near-term period of time where we have a few years of of uh, time to get the market going, that that actually, you know, once we hit that 2025, 2027 timeframe, there's enough momentum built, um, and people are aware, and people are demanding these products, and there's enough people out there to install them well that it can sustain itself over time. And hopefully, the prices have come down quite a bit since, uh, by that point as well. That's actually another question. Like 
I don't know if you have data on this handy, but how have prices been trending? Um, that's a difficult one as well. <laughs> this is another area where we're hoping for more and better data through these rebate programs uh, over time and, th- and through state, uh, state programs more broadly. Um, prices are still pretty high in some places. I think it largely depends on how much competition there is in the market uh, among contractors that do the installation work, uh, how much they're willing to recommend these products. So if um, I, you know, I expect uh, that in the southeast, for example, for heat pumps where they've been predominant for, for a long time, there's, there's not so much of a margin uh, compared to uh, other places where uh, the market's sort of still getting its feet under it. And um, you know, maybe there's, there's still a premium being placed on, on some of these installs. So the other thing we haven't talked about here is is the product side. Like, what are the products that people are buying to electrify homes? In some ways, you know, uh, you could make an argument that these are fairly mature technologies, and it's more of an adoption problem. We've we've had heat pumps for HVAC and water heating for quite a while. Induction stoves are not an entirely new thing. From your perspective, is there um, product innovation that is required? And if so, like, what do you think is going to be important to see? I think there's a lot of room uh, for further innovation here, particularly with products that people see and feel uh, regularly, like cooking products, for example. Um, we, so, you know, on the water heater side, we already talked about the 120 volt um, plug in style heat pump hot water heaters. Those are great, they open up new market segments. There's a lot of other market segments that, uh, for cooking products, for example, that um, people might not. People might like these products not for climate reasons, but for plenty of other reasons. So one good example of this is um, uh, some new induction stoves that are being brought to market, which have a bank of batteries where the warming drawer would ordinarily be. Uh, They also plug into the wall, uh, so they can also run off 120 volts, replace a gas stove. um, And the nice benefit is you have backup power built into your stove. So if there's a power outage, you could conceivably plug your refrigerator into your stove and have resilience and backup power where you didn't have it before. So I think we'll start to see, I uh, hope we start to see more solutions like that where um, you know, it's, it's obviously there's climate benefit and health benefit to converting to that induction stove and it's a better cooking experience which will bring more people to it. But it also gives you resilience in your home and it solves for something maybe you didn't have at the top of mind. Uh, as a as a buyer of a stove, but all of a sudden you go to the store and you see this thing which can power your fridge, and you're like, "Oh, that's a brilliant idea! Why don't I get one of those?" Right? So there's there's lots of ways, there's lots of benefits to um, electric appliances that have nothing to do with climate. They're just a better experience overall, and I think the market's starting to catch on to that. Uh, the market broadly for a lot of these products, and we'll start to see innovations that bring people to this conversation from very different places that have nothing to do with the emissions reductions. Steve, thanks so much for doing this. We'll check back in uh, in in some time when we have more data on the pace of progress on electrification. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Looking forward to it. Steve Pantano is the head of market transformation at Rewiring America. This show is a co-production of the newly rebranded Latitude Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Latitude is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.